morning. Let's pray before we get into God's word today, because I'm, to be honest with you, I'm still not recovered from last weekend, energy-wise. It was a wonderful, but uh, if you didn't know, this whole planting network, they have 40 churches, and we were kind of the co-founding church. We were the first church that they partnered with, and a church in, in Connecticut, um, and so when I get the privilege to go, I always tell my, my friend Tyler, Tyler, I work for you this weekend. Just tell me who to talk to. Tell me who to thank. Which planters need encouragement? Um, and God is just so good. In fact, one of their planting residents is a guy from Kazakhstan named Yesen. And he and I were talking. He's a very gregarious individual, flawless English. And he was talking to me. And he said, I said, I'm from Indiana. He said, really? I, the church that sent missionaries to Kazakhstan that reached my family, they're from Indiana. I said, yeah, you know, do you know Muncie, Indiana? Yeah, I was born in Muncie, Indiana. Do you know Union Chapel? He said, yeah, my, my grandparents were at Union Chapel when it was 20 people in the countryside. And uh, it grew into a very large and a very uh, passionate for sending. And so it just, that was a helpful reminder to me of, you know, we sow seeds. We don't know what God does with them, but generations later... Uh, you see someone who his maturity in the faith dwarfs that of uh, that that side of my family uh, that I'm kind of irritated with right now. So it was a it was a rather helpful reminder uh, that God works beyond us in very special ways. Um, so let's pray. Let's pray, uh, Lord, as we approach just a hard passage in Romans one and two. Lord, would you open up our hearts that we might hear you speak? Lord, would you apply your law to us to lead us to your gospel? All for your glory. Amen. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to see the faults of others than than to see your own? We can see our own faults in a superficial way normally, but to really see them... You know, I'm nearest to myself, and yet I'm so far from understanding myself, especially when I'm in the wrong. I think about myself all the time, and yet I can't analyze and deconstruct the ways that I've wronged my spouse or my children. My sight is crystal clear with others when they're in the wrong, and yet becomes foggy when I gaze at myself. I can see with pinpoint accuracy the wrongs of my children and my spouse, and yet I very quickly justify my own wrongs when they turn the same analysis onto me. And I think this has become exasperated in our internet age, hasn't it? Even in the Christian world, you know, I've talked to you all about this before, but I think with the internet age, we have overly stressed the importance of a prophetic posture. So uh, think about it like this. If you look at all of the social media posts, blog posts, articles on major uh, institutions like Christianity Today or, or First Things, and you look at the articles that talk about how to grow closer to Jesus, how to pray, how to repent of sin, you know, the things we all should be doing and are really hard. I bet you those articles would be absolute, and social media posts and all of that would be absolutely dwarfed by the articles written with a prophetic posture about all the things the church needs to repent of, right? And they're not wrong. Uh, If you're from an inner city church, you might be grieving Christian nationalism 
and how those Trumpy boomers are making us all look bad. If you're in a suburban church, you might be looking at the city and saying, wow, look at how wokeism and the left has co-opted the gospel with all of these young people. Again and again, what I see happening in our world is that we all have learned how to create crystal clear focus on others as a very convenient way of never having to look at ourselves, especially when we're not wrong. I actually happen to be quite scandalized by Christian nationalism in our country. I'm just as scandalized by the Marxism I see that is co-opting much of evangelicalism. Those are not wrong assessments. But so often what we do is we allow that to preoccupy our minds and our hearts, and we never actually have to look at ourselves. So today what I want to do is I want to look at Romans 1, 18 through 2.16, a rather large chunk of text today. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the power of the law. Now, this is, this is another thing I've been scandalized by, is how few evangelicals know our Reformation roots on law and gospel, right? At the very heart of the Reformation was Luther saying medieval Roman Catholicism has misunderstood the distinction between the law and the gospel. He would go so far as to say, the mark of a true theologian is a man or a woman who can rightly distinguish law and gospel, but we have no concept of it anymore. And this is why when we come to, to Romans 1, 18 through 32, all we see is these are examples for how screwed up the world is, right? And there are proof texts for why sin is sin. And guess what? That's right. That's true. But then we get confused when he transitions in Romans 2, and he starts saying a bunch of yous. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, notice what he's saying. He's saying, they, them, theirs. And he's getting everyone in the room to nod their head. Yep, they're pretty bad. And then out of nowhere, he transitions and he says, you, your. This is what the law does. The law takes our eyes off of the failures of others and says, if you could see yourself as clearly as you see them, you would see a fraction of what God sees. And so what the law does is it takes away every chance that we can create for ourselves to justify ourselves before God. It takes away every loophole we have, and that's what's happening in Romans chapter 2. Paul is ripping apart loopholes that we create to say, well, I'm really not that bad. He says, yes, you are. You were just nodding your head about them. Now it's about you. Yes, you are really that bad. The law casts a mirror onto us and no one can stand before it. And the only option we have is to cry out for mercy. The only option we have is the posture of the tax collector in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is how the law leads us to the gospel because the gospel is the proclamation that God hears our cries and extends mercy to us. So today what I wanna do is I wanna look at these difficult passages and maybe show you how Paul is preaching as a law gospel preacher. And this is why we often misunderstand these texts. 
So if you would, turn with me to Romans 1, 18 through 32. I'm just going to go long, but he's making a point. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God, him as God or, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shame, shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to, be to a debased mind and to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but gave approval to those who practice them. What is Paul doing here? He is preaching to the Jews in the audience and getting them all to start nodding their heads. He's looking at people that aren't in the room, and he's saying, yep, they really are that bad. In fact, Jonathan Linebaugh, who's my favorite young Anglican theologian and scholar, he, uh, in his dissertation, I think it's pretty convincing, he traces an apocryphal text called The Wisdom of Solomon, in which the Israelites are looking at the evil of their captors. They're in exile, and it's all, of, all of the evils that Paul lists here are verbatim in that. And what's the purpose of the wisdom of Solomon? It's to get them all nodding their heads saying, God's going to get you for what you did to us. So Paul is speaking to the Jews in the audience, and he's saying, let's all start nodding our heads. He's preaching a sermon to the people that aren't in the room. This is often what I see the prophetic posture being, isn't it? Prophetically preaching to those that aren't in the room, right? Um, this is like me preaching a sermon about the insanity of the sexual revolution and why we aren't Episcopalians anymore, right? You already knew that when you joined an ACNA church, right? That doesn't need to be restated. Well, it might need to be restated. But we're all like, mm-hmm, yep. That's why I'm here. Maybe not why, but I at least agree with that. Uh, I, I see it increasingly with like the, the uh, Don Quixote-esque chivalry and, and heroism. And I'm doing it right now, getting complaining about them, right? But right, it's the, we've got to stop the woke people that are killing the church, 
okay, they're not listening to you, by the way. It's the young people. All of the Trumpy boomers are making us look bad, and they're the reason why evangelism isn't working. Okay, well, they're not listening to you, right? We can find sermons where we can find real wrongs with the world, and we all start nodding our heads. But this is the power of the law. We all start nodding our heads when it's not about us. We agree with the law when it's pointed at someone else. We revel in the law when it's pointed at somebody else. But then what happens? Then the law gets turned on us. And what it reveals is that clarity that you had when it was pointed at someone else, God has greater clarity when it's pointed at you. Look at Romans 2 and look at the change in Paul's rhetoric. He, everybody's nodding. Everybody's agreeing. Everybody's happy with what's being said. Whichever room you would have rather been in, you, you're frustrated with the left, you're frustrated with the right, whatever preacher it was that you're nodding with, they're all nodding. And then here's what Paul says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches, and kind, uh, riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, how this can often be misappropriated is then to ignore the end of Romans 1. Because we're all bad, that means that's not sin anymore. He doesn't say that. Rather, he just turns the mirror around. And he says, you who judge, you yourself will be judged. The sermon you are nodding your head at, the head that nods is lit aflame by the law. When the law is a mirror and magnifies our own sinfulness, no one can stand. You who can see others so clearly but cannot see yourself, it's a reminder God sees you, even the areas that you can't see. But then the inner lawyer arises, right? We have people that have been Christians for a long time in the room, and they begin to justify themselves. And they say, well, you know, surely God can't mean I'm as bad as them. Surely he doesn't think I'm like those people. I mean, I at least try. Shouldn't trying count for something? This is medieval Roman Catholic theology. A guy named Beale, you don't need to know Beale, but Beale was very important. And Beale taught Roman, uh, Martin Luther an idea of justification that God basically takes all your attempts and he just kind of rounds them up, right? You try, and if you try enough, he'll just kind of count it as good. You get rounded up, you're good, right? But you got to try. And Paul doesn't give this out here. Look at what he says. He will render to each one according to his works. Oh, thank God, right? The human heart. Oh, thank God. Here's our out. We all just have to work hard enough. We can get that pesky law off of us. 
To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Oh, that's me. Thank God that's me. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Whew, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Thank goodness. This is how we often read Romans, right? Is that Paul is just schizophrenic? He just said everybody's guilty. Now he's saying, eh, you know, if you do good, you'll be okay. But we forget that Paul is, a brilliant, is brilliant at rhetoric. What point is he making here? The point he's making is hypothetically, if you do good, you'll be okay. Hypothetically, that if your you know, goodness outweighs your badness, you know, God doesn't show partiality, so hypothetically, you'll be fine. Oh, yeah, by the way, chapter 2, verse 5 still is you. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What he is saying is hypothetically, hypothetically, you'll be fine. But in reality, in reality, the law still crushes you. What is he doing here? The human heart, when the law turns upon us and all those sins that we see out there, all of a sudden, we have to look at ourselves for a moment. Very quickly, that inner lawyer in us jumps to his job or her job and we start grasping for loopholes. We start trying to get a mistrial, right? How can I declare this is a mistrial? Here's the loophole. I got to get out of this. What do we do? Well, I've done a lot of good. So surely you like me better than them. And then Paul says, yeah, hypothetically. But guess what, bro? That ain't you. The law turns back upon us and the law takes away all of our loopholes. Then we see the next loophole because he remembers there's not only Jews in the audience, there's Gentiles in the audience. And the loophole of ignorance arises. What if God, I didn't know that was a sin? What if I didn't know your law and therefore I can't be held accountable to a law I didn't know? Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts, conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. Not even ignorance gets you off the hook. The conflicting thoughts of the law that we create for ourselves accuse us and excuse us. We utilize them that we recognize our guilt and at the same time we try to utilize it to get off the hook. Even that loophole is taken away. You see, this is what many of us were just never taught is that the law, this is why when we get to Romans chapter seven and it talks about the law as if it's like this really harsh reality, the law that kills, we're all like, what's that about? I thought the law just shows me how to do right things. Well, it's because we don't know the first use of the law, the law that reveals our sinfulness and the law that takes everything that we think we can do to appease God and in the mirror of the law, it evaporates. 
and we have absolutely nothing left but one option, and that's to cry out for mercy. The law takes away all of our chances to try to justify ourselves, all of our chances to try to show that those people are worse than me and that God probably really does like me. And all we have left is to cry out for mercy. This is actually the dynamic that we see in Luke 18. Luke 18 so beautifully reveals to us how the law works. Look at it with me. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, often we forget like what a tax collector is, right? We think he just worked for the IRS. That, that, that is not immoral. Mm. Well, <laughs> he is, no. He was, I think most, some of us know, he was a traitor to his people. He was probably an extortioner. Um, he made his community worse, right? He was a neighborhood drug dealer, right? Uh, he was a neighborhood pimp. He was a person that made his community worse. We don't know his story, right? We don't know how he got there. We don't know how he self-justified that. You know, this is, you know, children's uh, uh, movies are just so easy because the bad guy's just bad. But I've never known a bad guy who's just bad. Normally there's a reason they got there. Was he the overlooked son? right? Was he raised in extreme poverty and he just needed to get out of it any way he could? Uh, Was he bullied? And so now this is the way that he could get one up on those that shoved him down. I don't know what his story is, but at some point we see in our passage today, all of his excuses are gone. His narrative as to why he isn't guilty evaporates. But we see another man who doesn't have the law work on him. We see a Pharisee who doesn't allow God's law to be a mirror in his life. He doesn't allow God's law to actually show him himself. And so his eyes are still fixated on others. And so he actually can't repent. Look at this. The two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you I am not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, so what's he doing here? Does he talk about God at all there? No. Does he seek mercy and help from God at all? No. He's simply informing God of how proud God ought to be of him. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What we see here is the power of the law to turn our eyes off of others and to turn our eyes back to ourselves. 
seeing all of the ways that we do not live up to the commandments of God, all the ways we have strayed in our hearts, all of the evil that we create in the world that we don't want to see, and then all of our chances to justify ourselves before God, all of our paths that we can have to glory evaporate before us. They melt in our hands under the power and weight of the law so that all we have left is to cry out for mercy. And the glory of the gospel is that our God hears our cry, that our God does not ignore us in our cry for mercy, but our God turns to us and brings us to life. Look at verse 16. Here we see the gospel revealed in Romans chapter two. Verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The only way to stand before a perfectly holy God and to not be completely destroyed by his glory, his mercy, or his, his glory and his justice is to cry out for mercy. And how he gives us his mercy is through the justification offered in Christ Jesus. That if we are judged by Christ Jesus, what does that mean? By, with, in. All of that means kind of the same thing in Greek that you are united to Jesus so that all of your guilt is removed from you. The guilt that you can't forget, God can't remember, it's removed from you as far as the east is from the west when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but all of his righteousness is given to you. All of his goodness, all of his glory is now layered upon you so that when the Father looks upon you, he doesn't see you under the weight of the law. Rather, he sees you through his perfectly righteous son. Brothers and sisters, this is what the law does. It takes our eyes off of others and puts them onto ourselves. And this is what the gospel does. It takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts them on Jesus. This is why I asked Aaron to sing, turn your eyes uh, to Jesus. Look bold in his wonderful face and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is not a, a song of escape as if we don't have to think about the world being awful anymore. Rather, it is a song that reveals to us that the movement of the gospel is a perpetual movement back again and again, away from the weight of our sins, away from the law that crushes us to the face of the one who redeems us, the face of the one that shows us mercy, the face of the one that gives us resurrection life. This is the mark of a true theologian. This is the mark of what it means to be a Christian to continually take your eyes off of others. Isn't that hard? That's a work that only the Spirit can do in me. I'm not strong enough for it. And by the power of the, God, of, of the law, he turns my eyes onto me. This is liturgically the point of confession in our service. We have heard the word preached. Uh, often liturgically in Anglicanism, the law is actually read, the Ten Commandments, especially during the season of Lent. It is applied to us. It is revealed to us that we don't keep it. 
And yet the words of absolution are always there. The words of mercy never, never stop flowing from Jesus' lips to you. And he invites us, come and be reconciled. Come and taste life. My question for you is, where are your eyes? Are they still fixated on others? Or are you stuck in the law? All you can see is your own shortcoming. Or are they turned to Jesus? Brothers and sisters, that's the only path to life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your law. And Lord, we thank you for your gospel. Lord, would our eyes be turned to you, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the very place of mercy. Lord, you are good. You are gracious. Lord, would we revel in the power of your gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. And now, family.